Welcome to CHS, Clinical Hormone Studies, Episode 6, where we attempt to break down some of the world's most bizarre cases of hormones gone absolutely wrong. I'm your host, Roger Aganti, and today we will be talking about a hormone called FSH, or the follicle-stimulating hormone. This hormone actually plays a huge role in your life that I'm sure many of you weren't aware of. Let's take a closer look at its function, its role in your body, and of course, what happens when the level of this hormone starts to imbalance. Stay tuned for more. In this episode, we will be covering FSH, or what is known as the follicle-stimulating hormone. As you have seen in many of our prior episodes, FSH can be traced back using our good old friend, the HBA axis. FSH is first synthesized in the anterior pituitary glands. However, the trigger to secrete FSH is caused by a growth hormone. It's called GnRH. Now, remember, this is not to be confused with GHRH, which is a hormone we studied in a few episodes ago. GnRH and GHRH are two different hormones. The hypothalamus secretes the GnRH in a pulsatile manner. And note that this picks up in puberty from largely being dormant in childhood. So the GnRH trigger only occurs when you start to reach that uh, puberty age, that right age for puberty, and is much and is pretty much not secreted in your childhood. Now, when the GnRH is secreted, it also triggers the secretion of LH and FSH. LH is the luteinizing hormone, and FSH is the follicle-stimulating hormone that we are studying today from the anterior pituitary glands. Now, in both sexes, FSH stimulates the maturation of primordial germ cells, which are the sperm, which is made through the spermatogenesis in the serotoli cells of the testes and eggs, respectively, for male and woman, which are made and selected for the process of the follicle growth and selection in the ovary. Now, in the testes, FSH also simulates the production of inhibin, and this aids in the spermatogenesis and negatively feedbacks on the hypothalamus and pituitary. The luteinizing hormone, the LH, causes the production of testosterone in the lydic cells of the testes, and the testosterone also negatively feedback, feedbacks on the hypothalamus and pituitary. So now we know the mechanism, essentially, the negative feedback mechanism. It's basically caused by the production of testosterone, which negatively feedback, telling you how much testosterone you need, how little testosterone you need. So the levels of testosterone will help adjust the influx of FSH and LH levels. Now, Estrogen and progesterone are also key in influencing the proper pattern of the ovulatory and menstrual cycle. These will also both negatively feedback on the hypothalamus and pituitary. Specifically, the luteinizing hormone in the ovary causes production of androgens like testosterone. Now, this sounds a little bit bizarre because I'm sure in school we've all been accustomed to testosterone being for males. But however, females do make testosterone, but it's just in much far less amounts than males, obviously. Now, the androgens and testosterone are actually key for many physiological functions, which is why testosterone is necessary for women. Now, slowly throughout a female's life, the follicular reserve, so what this is, is it's basically the pool of follicles that are made and developed into eggs for ovulatory cycle. This reserve diminishes. So what, what this exhaustion, this exhaustion of the follicular reserve is called menopause, and it's clinically diagnosed as one year with no period. So because the follicles produced estrogen, you get less estrogen because of this uh, diminishing of the follicular reserve. And a drop in estrogen is uh, per partially responsible for some of the secondary issues that can occur, like secondary osteoporosis, because estrogen is extremely important for bone health. 
So you can actually give supplemental exogenous estrogen as part of osteoporosis treatment. Uh, therefore, because of this drop in estrogen, there is what? According to our negative feedback mechanism, there is less negative feedback from the estrogen on the hypothalamus and pituitary. And so more follicle-stimulating hormone, however, not more luteinizing hormone is being produced. So you end up with very high FSH levels. Okay, now that we pretty much understand this mechanism and how it works, let's look at what happens when things go wrong. There are three main things that go wrong when FSH levels start to go awry. Now let's look at how a doctor would test for levels of FSH to outline the different problems caused by different levels. So first, the blood test the doctor would do is to test for FSH and LH. Now, if the FSH to LH ratio is way higher than it should be, then it is a key indication of menopause. And why might this be? Remember, we said earlier, again, I will repeat, that LH levels do not increase. It's just the FSH levels. And so if the only the FSH levels increase, then obviously your ratio of FSH to LH would be much higher. Okay, so this makes sense. So menopause is normal unless it occurs too early. And this leads pretty much into the first problem that we are going to talk about today. Primary ovarian failure. Primary ovarian failure is when menopause occurs before age 40. Now, note that some of us aren't familiar with menopause, so I'll just give a brief, uh, you know, age range of when it's supposed to occur. Menopause is normally supposed to occur in the late 40s to early 50s. So now uh, the primary ovarian failure is causing this menopause to occur before age 40. So this is problematic because estrogen is very important for bone health and prevents a woman from being able to get pregnant. So the cause varies significantly, often can remain unknown unless family history or specific genetic disease is identified. So the treatment for the primary ovarian failure is bone health treatment, hormone replacement therapy, or what is called HRT. However, HRT is usually not enough for pregnancy to occur. It often causes, it often requires, sorry, IVF. So HRT mostly for all the other effects of estrogen that the body is lacking. So you want to include this hormone replacement therapy because of the effects of estrogen that the because of the effects of estrogen the body starts to lack a few of the uh, of other things. So you would want hormone hormone replacement therapy to deal with this. Okay, the second problem that we are going to talk about today is visceral obesity. Essentially what visceral obesity is, is that it leads to insulin resistance, hyperglycemia, hyperinsulinemia, and all of this eventually leads to hyperandrogenemia on top of luteinizing hormone. So the luteinizing hormone is normally influencing the androgen production of both males and females, remember. So the insulin and the LH level has a synergistic effect on the increasing testosterone. And now you're making too much of the testosterone, and this causes the hyperandrogenism. And because of hyperandrogenism, a common side effect of hyperandrogenism is the anovulation. And this, again, occurs because of the negative feedback on the hypothalamus and pituitary. And so you don't get ovulation in females. Instead, you're going to get lots of effects of testosterone. And so this causes females to gain hirsutism or hirsutism. And this basically is a condition where you have facial hair growth and back hair growth, basically hair that females don't normally have. So it's essentially male pattern hair growth on a female. So this is a clinical diagnosis, although you can see um, a similar thing we can check out is polycystic ovaries, although the etiology of that finding is still not worked out just yet, quite yet. But the uh, treatment for this uh, visceral obesity is weight loss. So it's similar to diabetes in this way because it's the visceral fat that's what's causing the problem here. 
and you need to protect the uterus from the unopposed estrogen. And you can do this by giving combinational birth control, which is essentially estrogen and progesterone, which will kickstart the menses and get rid of the unopposed estrogen. And the birth control will also stop androgen production. So basically, it's all the idea of negative feedback, more negative feedback, more negative feedback. You don't want to like build, have too much, you know, so you want to stop all this. So now the uh, androgen, so basically we use birth control to stop the androgen production because we want it for the, we want birth control for the woman who are trying not to get pregnant. So we're stopping the entire process for a woman who doesn't want to get pregnant. We stop the androgen production completely. Another alternative use for women who do still want to get pregnant is clomiphene. So it's basically what this is. It's referred to as an estrogen antagonist. It works to block estrogen negative feedback on the hypothalamus and pituitary. And therefore, if there's no negative feedback, it'll start kicking, kickstarting the FSH production again to increase fertility. Okay. The last uh, problem that we're going to talk about today is Coleman syndrome. Now, Coleman syndrome can occur in both boys or girls, but it is four to five times more likely to happen in boys. It's not often seen in girls, so we can just uh, focus on what happens to boys here. So lacking of GnRH because of the failure of specific cell migration to the hypothalamus during development leads to a normal childhood because GnRH is normal during childhood. So you don't see this problem occurring during your childhood. However, when puberty begins and GnRH starts up, Nothing really happens because we, there is no GnRH. So the symptoms of this are delayed puberty. The boy will be a teenager and not have undergone specific aspects of puberty yet because there are no androgens and testosterone production because of no luteinizing hormone. Another symptom is infertility because no spermatogenesis will occur because of the missing FSH and inhibit. And therefore, there is also no negative feedback because the testosterone and inhibit are not being made. Okay, so a normal treatment for this is a exogenous and synthetic GnRH given to the patient as a medication will usually fix the problem and will jumpstart puberty and will also, or should also, not always, but should also return the fertility. Of note, these patients will have anosmia, anosmia, and any guess as to what that might mean? Um, it has the word NOS in it, um, the letters NOS in it, so you might guess nose, and, and indeed it is nose, it's lack of smell. Anosmia means lack of smell. So this is because the hypothalamic GnRH neurons that fail to migrate. So because lack of GnRH, the hypothalamic GnRH neurons fail to migrate. They were also part of the same neurons that are part of the olfactory system. And the olfactory system is the system dedicated to helping you smell. And it also failed to migrate. So therefore, these two systems were actually interconnected, which I found quite, quite um, interesting and really shows the intricacy of this of these systems and the hormones and all these different things acting on your uh, uh, testosterone and your ovaries for males and females. Okay, now let's look at a case study. A 28-year-old otherwise healthy male was presented with primary subfertility with a healthy female counterpart. He also had an increased libido, and libido is essentially your sex drive, for eight years. He was otherwise a healthy businessman with a body mass index of 22.34 kilograms per meter squared. He had normal virilization and normal potency. His physical examination inclu um, included the external genitalia, and all of these were essentially normal. Now, evaluation of the partner excluded female factor subfertility. He was found to have non-obstructive azoospermia. Now, what azoospermia is basically absence of sperm in the semen. A person has no ability to produce it. So essentially, 
it was non-obstructive azospermia. There are two types of azospermia that we normally see. Uh, the this in, in this case, we're referring to the non-obstructive, meaning that uh, the first type was actually obstructive azospermia, meaning that the you have sperm, you have viable sperm. It's just blocked or obstructed by something, so you're not able to produce it. And the second one is non-obstructive. You're uh, you don't have the entire you uh, already automatically don't even have an ability to produce it. There's just no sperm in the semen. And he additionally had low seminal fluid volume. Okay. Um, more into his physical examination revealed he had normal external genitalia and potency with increased libido, as we had mentioned earlier. However, this further evaluation on him revealed an isolated deficiency of follicle-stimulating hormone with elevated testosterone levels. So he had a deficiency of FSH levels, and this makes sense with our negative feedback mechanism. This relates to elevated testosterone levels. His LH and prolactin levels were quite normal, and he had a CT scan on his chest. A contrast-enhanced CT scan of his chest, abdomen, and pelvis, coupled with an MRI scan of the pituitary fossa, were revealed to be normal. Okay. So, doctors here pretty much just concluded that the patient's problems were resulting from the isolated deficiency of FSH. And they explained his increased libido by the presence of high circulatory levels of testosterone, with, and there was no evidence, however, of a testosterone-secreting tumor. So essentially, this is what caused this libido. Now for, uh, essentially, what doctors concluded is that this is an example of hypogonadism. Hypogonadism is the main cause of non-obstructive azospermia, which may be due to hypergonadotropic hypogonadism. So what this means is increased FSH and LH levels with low testosterone. There is another option. It could also be a cause of hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, which is lower inappropriately normal FSH and LH levels with low testosterone. So basically, either increased FSH and LH levels had a cause of the low testosterone, or extremely low FSH and LH levels caused the low testosterone. One of the reasons for azospermia in patients with hypogonadism is low intratesticular testosterone. However, the patient in this case reported at high endogenous testosterone production with azospermia with non-suppressed LH levels and low FSH levels. Okay, so now let's go over some quick statistics and info about this type of thing. So reports on isolated FSH deficiency resulting in male factor subfertility are actually exceedingly rare, and they have a prevalence of exactly 0.89% in uh, taken from a sample of 3,335 males with subfertility. And this was reported from a retrospective study on isolated FSH deficiency in infertile males, and it was a preliminary report from Egypt. And they based this data off of a period of eight years. So essentially what they did is they took some study of 29 patients approximately with isolated FSH deficiency. And these patients were found to have, and this is a big word, might I add, oligoastenozoospermia. So don't worry about the big word as much. They just had reduced sperm motility and they had a low spermatozoa count rather than sperm were rather than the uh, azoospermia. So they had oligoastenospermia, not the azospermia. So furthermore, the most affected sperm parameter was abnormal sperm morphology. And those with abnormal sperm parameters had a low FSH levels as compared to normal FSH levels dedicated, uh, detected those with the normal sperm parameters. Okay, so now that we know a bit about the statistics behind the study, let's go back to the patient. So again, remember that his contrast enhanced CT of the scan, uh, scan of the chest abdomen, and pelvis did not demonstrate any ectopic testosterone-secreting tumors. 
His basic investigations included blood sugar, serum electrolytes, creatinine, and cholesterol levels. And all of these were deemed to be normal. So it was, uh, the doctor concluded off with this patient by planning to start a course of recombinant subcutaneous FSH injections as treatment of the isolated FSH deficiency. And this worked. He gained his fertility back and he went on to live his life as normal. So this patient was cured and everything and everything was identified to be normal after that for his follow-up appointment and he was pretty much set up. Okay, so in conclusion today, we saw what FSH is, how it functions in the body, and what happens when it goes wrong. Essentially, there were three main problems that we went over. Primary ovarian failure, visceral obesity, and Kalman syndrome. We also saw an example of a case study, a real-life case study, and how intricate the study was in order to treat the patient. Remember that we had to look at some statistics, we had to conduct scans of the patient, and we even needed to see what his levels were, uh, what his levels of FSH were. In the next episode, we will be talking about a very, very, very interesting hormone, one of my personal favorites, triiodothyronine, or what is known as T3. Stay tuned for more, and I'll see you all next time on CHS.